Hey everyone, welcome back to the Salt the Streets podcast. Today, we're going to be doing something just a little bit different. Our good friend Don is off this week, taking a little R&R before he has to switch into full-time fatherhood mode. So this week, you're getting the very first pilot episode of a little sideshow we're calling Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. It's an interview show with local members of the community, and yeah, you guessed it, it's about their life in this bastion of liberty we call the United States of America, and how they pursue their happiness. On this first episode, I sat down with a near and dear friend of mine, Joseph Michael O'Connor, a public licensed land surveyor. He is a mentor in both my personal and professional life. We had a great time sitting down together, and I hope you really enjoy it. So kick back, relax, and welcome to Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. I think this is probably going to be the first time I'm going to be on record saying that I am a surveyor. LSIT. I'm a land surveyor in, in training. In training. In, That's right. Or in transit. In transit. Yeah, you yeah. could be in transito. So this is just not a job, you know, hopping and chopping out there. It's you, a lifestyle. You can take this experience in, in your work here and go anywhere in the nation. Yeah. And oftentimes you can go anywhere in the world. So, uh, my name is Joseph Michael O'Connor, uh, born in November 1949, just turned 69, Woo! getting ready to retire. And a friend of mine said, you are not retiring yet. You've got to chill. You've got to take two months off, take two months off, and then decide if you want to continue or, or do you enjoy doing your own thing. So I'll try that. I'll start off with three weeks and see if we can't blend that into two months. I like it. I like that plan. Anyway, I grew up in Texas, 25 years in Texas, um, and then moved here in 75. Been here since then. Spent uh, five years in Ketchikan from 80 to 85. Went back to Juneau in 1995 to 98. And then my buddy Mark and I started up an engineering and survey company. Uh, and here we are 21 years later. Still kicking. Still kicking it. Kicking e it good. Even as a retired man. Yes. Kicking <laughs> it good. And sometimes it kicks me. Yes, this is true. Yeah. It is kind of the, the nature of the job. And I know that you will identify from this. A year ago, they pulled me out of the field and put me in the office. Which is great because you stay dry. Yeah, but you kind of miss. That, oh yeah, that fresh air. Yeah, and hopping and chopping. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yesterday was a, a beautiful day because we got to get back out in the field and jump out and play in the woods for a while and chopping, searching for little pieces of rebar in the ground. You know, the first guy I met here at Snoqualmie Pass is still a friend of mine today, and he told me many years ago. He said the best day, any day in Washington, is a good day in which it's not raining. So it can be foggy as hell. It yeah. still ain't raining. This is true. You know, it might be 95, which is pushing it a little bit for us, yeah. you know, flatlanders. But <laughs> so I've enjoyed my ride. It's been a good ride. Um, enjoyed working with all the people. I got this new kid that I'm teaching. Oh yeah, yeah. is he a pain in your ass? No, he's quite, <laughs> he's quite delightful to work with. 
That's fun. And I work with his brother. Yeah. And I work with his mother. Yeah. And so he's somebody's mother's brother from another mother. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know. <laughs> that works. Yeah. Well, did we did we actually mention what your official profession is? No. Uh license licensing in this state. Uh you can be an architect, an engineer, a structural, civil, but they also cl- class uh us out as land surveyors. Professional land surveyors. PLS. Not, not just land surveyors. Got to throw the professional in there. It's, that's why I say I'm a land sur- surveyor. You're a professional land surveyor. Yeah, which carries some weight. You got to watch your P's and Q's. Mm-hmm. And um, it says right there in the law, you got to do things that in, in which you're qualified. If you step out of bounds there, you better get some advice. I like that. So I used to stay away from um, waterfront surveys mm-hmm. for a long time because those people are, are litigious so before we let before we start getting into minutia and that let's Ooh. the yeah minutia that's a word that i steal from you all the time um let's because most of the people i think that are going to listen to this have no concept no clue what a surveyor does what the just even the most general aspects of the job are why it's important and what it means to to you know situations you might need a land surveyor. Can you fill us in a little bit about what surveying is? I know you have some great historical stories about it. Go west, young man. So maybe we should just start there and give the people just a little bit of background to this lovely life that we call surveying. Well, land surveying is a kind of a misnomer. It should be really a property surveying. So some states have a requirement that every time a piece of property is sold, it it has to be marked on the ground. Your corners have got to be in. So if you were to sell it and it's already been surveyed, then you can jump out of that little realm because you say it's already been surveyed. But if it's a brand new piece, so it protects the public. And if you look at the requirements for ethics from a land surveying standpoint, they you're talking about protecting the health and welfare and of the of the public. So we get involved because we're marking property lines on the ground, and there's a lot of background uh, stuff that goes on in the office that the normal landowner doesn't ever see. He does not. He or she does not see us going out and searching for monuments in, in a plat or section corners way the hell over there and gone and we they only see us marking their corners mm-hmm. their four corners your little four property corners little at f- your at your house <clears throat> so uh it's incumbent upon each one of us to know where our property corners are and and most people haven't having a clue unless their property is bounded on four sides by a fence or three mm-hmm. sides and a sidewalk then you're kind of conformed you really don't need a property survey because there's your lot, there's your spot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, other people out there in the rural areas need to know where their property corners are. And like I said, it's incumbent upon each person. So if you're going to build a fence, you need to know where your property corners are. You need to have, have found your existing property corners or hire one of us guys to come out and put them in. Um, so when, when did... You know, the Great Westward Expansion is probably a good place to start historically. So, 
during this is what uh, early or mid 1800s probably did we start surveying basically as soon as the colonies kind of landed on on the east coast and just well they go, find, once the colonies were established they figured out that hey we got a whole bunch of land out west here we better go take a look at so Lewis and Clark went out checked it out came back and said <clears throat> There's some good stuff out there. Maybe we ought to find out where it is. Mm-hmm. So they created a manual of survey instructions, and the government land office created this manual that every surveyor was required. And they said, go on out to Pennsylvania and start going west. Go west, young man. <laughs> so they did, and they kept going and going and going. And it's interesting as you look historically at what they had to set there, their corners out here we've got a lot of timber and rocks and so our section corners which would be a mile square were uh, cedar post and rocks and and when you get into the midwest uh, they didn't have any trees they just got barren crap out there so they did what they call rocks pits and mounds (laughs) so you dig a three by three by three hole and you'd put the dirt up there so you got your pit you got your mound, and in there you plunk a rock and take a shot on it, and there's your section corner. Mm. So, so you say section corner. Let's let's talk about that for a second. Let's break down the idea of the entire country essentially being mapped out in a coordinate system that's just a bunch of imaginary lines running from east to west, north to south, and each one of those is a mile by a mile called a section. Right. And they span every inch of the United States. And of course, globally as well, but it depends on. I don't know how they survey in India, but it's probably got to be a pretty similar system. They probably call it something else. Yeah. Well, when they started in Pennsylvania and going west, um, I won't get into the technicalities, but when you run a, a line from the equator to the North Pole, all those lines converge on the North Pole. And so as you get farther out west, you this convergent kind of screws you up. So they make compensating um, calculations as you go. And so they started saying, go out there, Colin, go out there and survey a township, which is six miles by six miles, and certain uh, instructions. So you start at the southeast corner of this thing, you plunk a a stick in the ground, and you go out six miles, you go north six miles, east six miles, and south back to your original stick in the ground. And then you head on out west, keep going. So then they put all this land up for sale. The government land office put all this land up for sale, and everybody said, well, we can't afford 36 square miles. <laughs> you know, even at a buck a square mile, that's $36. We don't have that kind of money. So they kind of backed up and said, okay, let's go back out and do every mile. So now we have a series of uh, ranges, range lines, and township lines. Um, that So we have 36 square miles, back to back to back. And every so often they make these compensating surveys so that um, you'll have these closing corners. Every, normally you have four section corners, but as you get farther and farther west, they have a line that comes up and closes on this east-west line. And, and I know it's confusing to the novice, but um, we've got one of those going on right now. So then they started selling um, square miles of land. And when you hear the 
term the back 40, going out there back 40 and get Paul, bring him back on in. When you take a section, which is 640 square, 640 acres, and you chop it in half, and you chop it in half, and you chop it in half, you end up with quarters. So you can take um, a quarter section and keep chopping it up, and you end up with fives and tens and forties. So that's where the back 40 came from. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's funny. It's an old uh, term that came out of the West. Yeah, I hear that on, like, John Wayne movies sometimes. Oh. Yeah. And then they have, uh, they had a bunch of good old boys down in Nevada that decided that they would, uh, the surveyors were paid by the GLO by the mile. GLO. Government 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 Land Land Office. And so you would submit your your surveys to the GLO. You'd have to send it by horseback to Washington, D.C., and there, a Scrivener, which is a guy, a guy has makes real fancy writing, he would put all your field work into notes, and he would draw uh, plats and maps. And, and, and um, so these old boys, in, in, it happened all over the West. They decided, well, we don't need to do that. We'll just make this stuff up. Yeah, man. So they're called fraudulent surveys. And they just sat in, in the bar and drank whiskey and made up some notes and shipped them off to Washington, D.C. and got paid. <laughs> so, sounds like something Lance would do. <laughs> oh, that's right. They don't know who Lance no, is. No, they don't know who Lance, Lance is. He's one of our good old boys that works here. He's a good guy. Um, so, a little background about surveying. I like that. That's good. Um, so, now, personally, how has your... You know, starting this business, um, say, 21 years ago? Yep. Yeah. And so from where you guys started and where we're at now, like, how's how's the journey been? How's the ride been? How's it been being a business owner and a, and a tradesman and a, you know, a professional tradesman that makes a living off of, you know, your skill set? Well, my friend Mark... Uh and I started this business 20 years ago, and we've both been in the business. He is an engineer and me as a surveyor since uh, the mid-'70s. And after a stint in Alaska by myself and Mark was in Malaysia, we came back to beautiful Kitsap County and said, let's do this thing. You know, we can do this thing. So we, he and I started a business with just two of us. And uh, within the first year or two, we hired a woman who was licensed. And then we hired another person and this person. And we got up to about 10 people by 2008. And then uh, the real estate and the banking industry kind of took a nosedive. So we. Great great recession, as it's so called. So we got down to six people. And weathered the storm and uh, gradually built the business back up to, I think, about 15 of us now. Uh, we've had some attrition here and there, but it's been, a good, uh, it's been a good experience. It's interesting being in business with your best friend. That's not always the best thing to do. Yeah, I can imagine there's some complications that might pop up here and there. But overall... Uh, We've had a good ride. We've made some money. We, we have a good name. And, um, I mean, you realistically, you guys have helped build half the county. Really think about it. 
Yeah. You know, and that's an aspect. I think this is uh, kind of the next topic I want to cover is, you know, this is a, you know, surveying in general and even just, I mean, we can talk about land development a little bit too, but that's a, these are trades that are completely misunderstood for one. Um, I think they have kind of a bad reputation and, you know, they're very, very little known for one. I mean, we run into complications all the time on developments because for whatever reason, somebody doesn't want something built. And uh, what's that you always say? You know, I like the fact that I got to build my house here is great, but I don't want you to be able to buy that land in front of me and build your own house. That's a NIMBY. A NIMBY. Not in my backyard. There you go. <laughs> or the other one of my favorites is called Banana. Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anybody. <laughs> Something to that effect. So, yeah, everybody's got their little piece of heaven, uh, and they've got a forest next door that they dump all the yard waste in and their dog poop, and they go down there and, and so they kind of treat it like their little private park. Mm-hmm. And when you come in and cut all the trees down or propose to cut all the trees down and put in 50 new homes, people get a little upset. Which is, I mean, it is understandable. It's natural. It is natural. But it's also, I think, I think it's important for people to understand that there's never going to be less people. There's always going to be more people. If it's a halfway decent place to live, there's always going to be more people coming. People are going to have babies. They're going to, people are going to move in from the city. And the only place they're going to live, they're either going to live in your house because the property taxes and the property values can go up so much you can't afford to live there, or we can build them new houses to live in. Well, one of the solutions that Canada has taken, Vancouver in particular, is they've gone vertical. You go up there to uh, Vancouver, B.C., Burnaby, any of the surrounding communities, and, and they're all 20 and 30 story um, places so they being a very international community they've gone vertical yeah and Bremerton's got a 20 story building proposed which I think is doesn't fit the character of downtown Bremerton but another way that that some of the municipalities have handled growth is that they make it very easy for what they call an auxiliary dwelling unit most mm-hmm. people know it by mother's law, mother-in-law's apartment. Yeah. So you turn your garage into a little four or five hundred square foot place, uh, and you rent it out to somebody for four or five eight hundred dollars a month. Kitsap County has made it very onerous, uh, and currently uh, one of our local uh, attorneys has got a referendum in the city of Bremerton to allow two ADUs on a property. Ooh. So, like I said, um, Vancouver, Washington, Vancouver, Canada has made it real easy. You go and give them a thousand bucks, show them your architectural plans, and boom, there's a little spot there. It also not only helps the homeless community, you know, it's pretty affordable housing. Yeah. But it gives the homeowner a little extra cash. Of course, he's got to put out some money to turn his garage into an apartment. Yeah. But it, it, it is one of the alternative solutions, um, you know, for growth. Uh, the Growth Management Act here in this state was initiated in, in the mid-70s, and they 
tried to figure out at that point, how do we handle growth? I took a look, look at California and New York City and some other places and said, whoa, we don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. So how can we <laughs> analyze this? What can we do? So they came up with a number of um, laws, the Shoreline Management Act and a, a number of um, other things that they all piece together. And that that model continues to evolve. Basically, they said, let's let's densify the cities. That's where people, you know, are going to be, and we're going to keep the rural rural. And so now, as we look at the upcoming generations, with people not wanting to drive a car, they don't want to do that. Um, and some developments in Seattle have no parking requirements because they realize that these. Millennials or the snowflakes or whatever you want to call these young kids, they want to just Uber around. They just want to walk from their house to the restaurant to work, and I and I think that's great. So, well, yeah, I mean, if you live in a big city your whole life and you're never going to go anywhere or do anything else, you just oh, I mean, there's ways you can get out. There's a bus system and airports and taxis, but if you're if you live in a little apartment. In the middle of downtown somewhere in San Francisco or New York City or Seattle. And if you want to go down, hang out with your friends at the bar, catch an Uber, you know, take a little taxi, whatever. The Uber and Lyft system is is pretty, the phenomenon that it, it has caused in transportation, I think, is, is very, it's not very well understood. Uh, you look at the difference between the Uber and Lyft system compared to like just the cab companies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're half the cost at a time and they're, they're usually there within two minutes of you ordering one and you can get where you need to go and you're done. You don't I, have to buy a car. I just came back from Portland a couple of months ago and they've really got their transportation system down there figured out. They have trolleys and trams and trains and, uh, you just walk, they, these trains and trolleys go right through downtown. They come through slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all very well organized. You can get anywhere. You can get from downtown to the airport. You can get from downtown to 30 miles southwest of Portland, 20 miles southeast of Portland, way up north. Seattle is lagging a little bit yeah. in, in there. They're trying, I they're, think. They're, they're, tr- they're trying. But they're lagging behind for sure. And it's just like, well, we'll get local here. This uh, Kitsap uh, ferry system that they've had coming out of Kingston. Yeah, the the foot ferry? Foot ferry. Yeah. They've, they've tried that three different times. This is the third time they've tried that. And so, just to be clear, this is a foot ferry from Kingston to Seattle. Downtown right? Seattle. Yeah. Right now, you got to catch a ferry to um, Edmonds and catch a train south to Seattle, or you got to mm-hmm. drive to... Bainbridge Island and go around. So this is for the north end of Kitsap County. If they got the ridership, if people would support this, this would be fantastic. Yeah, you and I could go with our wives and girlfriends and go right straight to. The, and thirty-five minutes later, we're downtown Seattle. We can walk up to Jazz Alley, hear a show, eat some sushi. Yeah, uh, go to the Seattle Center. I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, but they've got to. They've got to get the ridership. Yeah. Uh, I was in Perth, Australia a long time ago, and they had created these right-of-ways. And this is a surveying function, uh, acquiring land, strips of land to allow transportation. 
So like I-5 over Seattle, it's probably a 300-foot-wide strip. Over there, they had 500 feet. So they had a strip, of a highway, two, three-lane highway coming north, one going south, and they had a huge median in between in which there was a, a fast train. Oh, wow. And they had stops every, say, 10 miles. And there was a place right in the middle of the freeway. You maybe had to park over here, but you could get to that. And you could get from 30 miles outside of Perth to downtown Perth, you know, in, in 30 minutes. Yeah. And they're trying to do that in Seattle now with the, they're tearing down the viaduct and um, putting the wrong size railroad tracks in the tunnel. Yeah, and, or, and ordering uh, uh, streetcars that don't fit in their existing facilities, but you know that's a that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah, that's a very Seattle specific. They problem. have they have tried. Right now, we have a problem going to Bainbridge Island. We have a, a fifty to eighty year old bridge that we got across called Agate Pass Bridge, mm-hmm. and that corridor just getting on and off in the island. When I grew up here forty years ago, was uh, you know you could come from. Bainbridge to Paulsbo in 12 minutes. Now that's yeah. 45 minutes. So without on a good day. On a good day. Yeah. Yeah, I know intimately well how long it takes to get off that the from the just from the ferry to just get off island and, you know, for my wife to get home every day through traffic. It could be over an hour. Yeah. And that's just that's just stupid. Well, some of our jobs that you and I have gone to. Yeah. You know, we'll leave here at 7 o'clock in the morning and we get to the island and there's a, there's a line of cars six miles long from the bridge to the ferry. Nowhere to go but wait. Luckily, we know what the, where the back roads are. Yeah, that's true. But. See, we need, we need a little bridge right right there. Right well, between. They, well, they've tried that. They've tried to punch in yeah. from, from Illahee over to Bainbridge Island. And uh, the Bainbridge Island, Islanders, Islanders are uh, quite a eclectic bunch of people. Indeed. 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 So they, there are a lot of NIMBYs there. <laughs> yes. Now, on the other hand, speaking of NIMBYs, that goes reverse. I've heard a lot of talk lately um, in San Francisco where the people are saying, bring it on. Bring, this, bring these small houses in. Bring local developments. Uh, I just attended a, a meeting for Paulsville Place right here. They've took an old Navy housing complex there 40 years ago. It was a horrible blight in the city of Paulsbo. <laughs> and they are now got cute little houses there. And I just attended a meeting um, of the last phase, Paulsbo Division 8. And they've got a local architect there designing the project. And he's got a lot of um, under the really well designs underground parking, uh, two story condominiums. You can't even see the underground parking. That's pretty cool. And on Jensen Way, there's retail, and they've created cafes and coffee shops, and you know, people places where people can walk. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of people are headed nowadays. And then you'll have the, the second or third story is the condos or apartments or houses. Yeah, there's there's 22 new condominiums proposed there, and only four or five of them have retail. And right across the street, 
there's uh, phase seven, let's say, there's some existing uh, nail salons and uh, delis and what have you. So it's just an extension of the city of Paulsbo and Front Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and of course, they got a parking problem in Paulsbo. Yep. We were there last night. We tried to go downtown. No parking, no parking. We ended up over near Central Market. They got parking. Oh, yeah. And but you're a mile away from downtown. But, uh, yeah, the, this new Paulsbo 8 concept is, uh, is really architecturally. They've designed it after Bergen, Norway. And so each of the condos looks like a little house. They're all connected. And there's a, there's a skyway that connects this group of four to this four. And there's large public pathways that go through there, through the retail, and connect with, with uh, crosswalks and pathways that in the other divisions of Paul's Boat. That's cool. It's way cool. Way cool to be able to leave your place and walk half a mile down, wave at your neighbors and, yeah. and get on downtown and you don't need a place to park. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, the with more people comes more vehicles, and that's that is problematic to say the least. I remember leaving Kitsap County probably about fourteen years ago, and the biggest problem we had around here was you'd get behind somebody inevitably if you were driving from Kingston to Paulsbo going five miles an hour under the speed limit, blocking everybody out. Nowadays. You know, I moved back 10 years later, and I can't even hardly recognize anymore. There's three times as many people. There's, you know, twice as much traffic, if not more than that. Everybody's driving faster, not slower anymore. And that old-timer with that that you were following 10 years ago had a bumper sticker. Now it says, the closer you get, the slower I go. Yeah. <laughs> so... That's funny. We were talking yesterday about the traffic. We hit Paul's boat at 3 o'clock traffic and going to the movie. And, um, you know, that's the traffic hour, 3 to three to 6. It, yeah. But it's nowhere like Seattle. Yeah. The other day I was over there for a doctor's appointment. And if you leave 15 feet gap in front of you going 70 miles an hour up I-5, some person is going to fill that gap. <laughs> so a void that needs to be filled. And so you've got to keep it tight over there. And um, it's nuts. When I was there, when I lived there in the 70s, I did not drive even then from 4 to 6 o'clock. And I, I rode my bike to University of Washington, and I had a jack-in-a-box and, and an Albertsons and a Sears, and I had everything I needed within walking distance. So I didn't need to go anywhere. Yeah. But it, it's like around here, when I come back from Silverdale, I hit Paul's Bow at three, four, five o'clock. It's nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. And they don't Especially have- Especially this time of year. I mean, we're coming up on Christmas here in 10 days. It's, Silverdale's gonna be a nightmare for the next two, three weeks. Well, what does that tell you? Stay out of Silverdale. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's all right. We have plenty of breweries in Paulsbo. We got eat, we even got a decent one in Kingston. We don't need to go anywhere. No, we got we're good. We got five. Paulsbo has the most brew pubs for a city of its size in the state of Washington. I am very proud of that. What a what an <laughs> honor. What a place to live. Here's to Paulsbo. Yeah, she is.
Busy, yeah, we should mention we're drinking a beer from Rainy Days Brewing, which is actually in Paulsville. On the uh, on Don and I's normal show, our Salt of the Streets show, we always drink. We try to drink local beer every week and talk about them because, I mean, I'm still waiting on a sponsorship, guys. Still waiting. Well, in, our, <laughs> in our next episode, um, we can talk about the Old Town Tavern in Silverdale. Oh, yeah. Where Mark and I grew up. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the kids used to go there and bring their homework. So that's a whole different genre of craziness that we don't need yeah. to get into. Today. That was a different era, for different sure. Era. <laughs> that was still t- era. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Well, so we, you know, the name of the show, technically, this this show, it's a, the little side show, is uh, Life, Liberty, in the Pursuit of Happiness, right? And so I wanted to, because we didn't really talk, I didn't front load you at all with this. We just sat down and started yeah. talking. Yeah. Um, you know, there's going to be essentially three segments to this. And the first one, we've already covered life. And we've started to touch on liberty a little bit. You know, we've talked about how we think the county should be run and all that good stuff. And, you know, and then, of course, the third one is pursuit of happiness. So now let's let's take some time and talk about what you do for fun, you know, as a licensed professional land surveyor, you know, half of your life is your work if not more but i know you have some some hobbies hidden in there somewhere i know you have a deep intimate passion for music and you know good times and so tell me what you like to do for fun fun oh my fun is just about ready to start yeah baby yeah baby <laughs> um i like to play golf i played golf in high school it was okay uh, but golf nowadays uh, is just a way to relax. Um, I have two rules. You can't get over a 10 on any one hole. <laughs> That's good. And I don't keep score. There you go. So I'm just out there walking with my dog and my friend and or friends, hitting that white ball around. And there may be a few rainy days involved. Yep. Always. But that standard rule of golf. One of my passions, uh, I used to do a lot of kayaking. I still have a kayak, and then I'm going to get a double. Uh, it's a great passion around here because these bays and waterways in the, in the wintertime, nobody uses. Oh, yeah. Fishing sucks, and it's cold and rainy, but you can hang out and paddle and do a little oystering and, and clamming. Have you ever seen any... Uh any orca when you were out kayaking? Yes. Matter of fact, one of my best experiences was about 15 years ago, the orca came into Dye's Inlet, which was Silverdale, the bay at Silverdale. Wow. And they were after the dog salmon in, the, in uh, Chico Bay. Oh. And so we took the boats out there and paddled and just were very still. And, of course, they say you can't be within 500 feet of an orca, but mm-hmm. you're in a kayak and you've got an orca coming at you. You don't have a motor with which to get out of there. Yeah. So when that black and white monster takes a breath of air and goes under your kayak and you look down there and see all that black and white going underneath there, it's, it's an event. It, it's <laughs> really, really, really yeah. nice. I also like to do, uh, I turn some wood, I make bowls, 
Uh, I was fortunate enough uh, years ago to find a big, big maple burl, which I finally got slabbed up and um, started sanding on it. And then I turned the legs and made this gorgeous um, maple table with what they call a live edge. And rather than being square and all shiny, it's all... It's like uh, that natural. It's a natural right. look. And you see a lot of this in Seattle shops where they'll take live edge stuff and butt it together, butterfly it, and, and sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, like a mushrooming? Yes. That's a phenomenon that only happens for a couple months around here. But uh, from where we sit within 3,000 feet of here is a wonderful patch of chanterelles. Mm. Um, I like to walk, like to walk the dog. Um, well, you already mentioned Jazz Alley. Oh. So you better talk about music. 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 I was fortunate enough to grow up in the 60s. And back then, you only had 50 groups to choose from if, in, in, <laughs> in this genre. I mean, there was Frank Sinatra and all the crooners over here. And then there was the what they call the beatniks and the kind of the jazz genre of stuff. And then we had rock and roll. And then we had country and western. And growing up in Texas, of course, Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson and Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys and... All this historic, old country and western were part of my life. And uh, I moved to Austin in 68 to get out of Corpus Christi. Mm-hmm. And we had this place called Vulcan Gas Company down on Congress Avenue. It was a nightclub. And it was pretty expensive to go there. Uh, I saw Janis Joplin there, Edgar Winter, Steve Miller... Uh, on and on and on. And the cover was a dollar. Wow. So, <laughs> Willie Nelson. If only. <laughs> yeah, if only. So, Willie Nelson bought this uh, roller rink uh, back in the 70s and converted it into a music venue. Seems like something Willie Nelson would do. And it was called the Armadillo World Headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. And uh, groups like the Grateful Dead came there, and Jackson Brown. I saw Bonnie Raitt in 1968. Uh, you know, this was all in in, in Austin. Austin in wow. Austin, yeah. So it was quite the scene for music. Music. Yeah, sounds like quite the mecca. And they had a place called Sixth Sixth Street, and they had outdoor uh, Western dance clubs. We used to go to a place called Feedlock. Feedlot, and it was a prime rib and steak place, and mm. and they had an acre of limestone lined dance floor with naked light bulbs, just oh, wow. hanging, and country and western bands would play out there, and of course it's you know you're dancing in ninety degree weather at night, yeah, and so you're hot and sweaty, but uh, you're drinking long necks, which is a, a tall bottle of beer, Lone Star. Pearl, Falstaff, <laughs> and Luchenbach beers, you know. It's horrible beer. It's, it, it's, it's 3-2, but that's all we had back then. Yeah. Can't so, imagine the dark days before microbrews took over the world. Speaking of microbrews, now I'm going to keep on my music mm-hmm. scene here. So I saw a lot of good music 
and I grew up in an era where the music was fantastic. I mean, you, and I know you and I have talked about this, but the Brits discovered the blues. So the Stones and the Zombies and the Beatles and uh, Eric Clapton and all those guys somehow got tuned into the old Delta blues from the 30s. Like the Louisiana Louisiana Delta. blues. And people like Muddy Waters and, and Robert, Robert Johnson and those guys, they turned all their music into uh, a really bluesy rock and roll. You look at the, at the song Crossroads that Clapton did in the, in the 60s uh, with Cream, um, written by Muddy Waters, not Muddy Waters, but Robert Johnson and a lot of the Stones music. You look at their credits, Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters. So it's it's interesting wow. that we, that our rock and rollers, the Allman Brothers, I didn't really know what the blues were. I knew that I liked Jimi Hendrix and the Allman Brothers and B.B. Uh, King. And one day it hit me. The blues make you move. Yeah. And the blues, they talk about, that's why they call it the blues, because... It's the saga of people's lives, you know. It just tells their stories. And uh, my friend Mark Coleman has not a lick of musical danceability in him. <laughs> I've danced more with his wife than he ever will. Yeah. And I said, don't you feel it? Doesn't the music, can't you feel it, man? How come you're still in your seat? Get up, move. I can't sit down. I got to move. <laughs> and I moved here recently so much that I ripped my ankle apart. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so watch out when you get to be old farts. About. But music's been an integral part of my life. And uh, like I said, historically, you look at people. I just saw a thing the other night on the Access Channel, Jeff Beck. Um, Jeff Beck is a well-known um, guitarist from England. And... And uh, the Yardbirds from, and this goes way back, this is mid-60s stuff. Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin played with Yardbirds, followed by Jeff Beck with Yardbirds, followed by Eric Clapton of the Yardbirds. And this all took place over about three or four years. So they had some tremendous talent playing for them. And if you That's look crazy. at... If you look at people like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know, uh, Stills and Crosby came out of uh, the Birds, and Graham Nash came out of the Hollies, and Neil Young came out of somewhere else. And all those people, you know, look at Poco and Jimmy Messina and uh, J.D. Souther and, and all these guys, and look where they came from and where they went. You know, and, and it's just it's just fascinating. And then, of course, I grew up in Texas in an era that had songwriters um, that are little known uh, songwriters, a guy named Michael Martin Murphy and B.W. Stevenson and Willis Allen Ramsey. Willis Allen Ramsey was a one hit wonder. He has one album out <laughs> and uh, he wrote Muskrat Love. 
Oh, yeah. That America did. So there were songwriters back there in Texas when I was there that were writing for Nashville guys and uh, uh, just fascinating music coming out of Texas. And uh, so I'm very fortunate. And I, and I remember a lot of that. And I'm very interested in, and of course, this is 50-year-old stuff, <laughs> you know. But Eric Clapton remains one of my favorite. And he was on this thing with Jeff Beck, and he was talking about Jeff Beck's ability. <coughs> and to hear Clapton talk about somebody, I, I revere Eric Clapton, and to he hear him talk about somebody else's guitar ability, the ability to play guitar. Guitar ability. Guitar I, ability. I like that <laughs> the guitar we'll ability. That. <laughs> it was just fascinating. And and to this date, I still go to uh, jazz venues in Seattle. Uh, Average White Band is a Scottish funk band. <laughs> Ten years ago, they celebrated their 40th anniversary of their first album. That's so crazy. And I was there when they, they've got a full horn section. And, and I've been to Jazz Alley 20 times, and people are grooving, and they're dancing in their seats, and occasionally you'll see somebody standing up. But the average white band had 90% of the people on their feet. There were women dancing on the tables. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I've never, ever seen anything like it. That's funny. So there's, there's good venues all over, Jazz Bones and Tacoma and Highway 99 Blues and, and Seattle and Jazz Alley. And, you know, there's just... Oh, we went to that show down at the uh, the Admiral in Bremerton, yeah. which is really good. That's a nice venue, too. Yeah, and, of course, you hadn't seen them, but I'd seen both those yeah. groups up here at The Point. The Point has a Friday, a free Friday night and Saturday night concert venue at the hotel... Um, and they bring in local people, and both those people we saw, Skinny Blue and Cara Hess, had played up there. Oh, yeah. And it's free. Can't be free. Can't man. be free, you know. And that's like two minutes away from my house. Yeah. And you've never been. <laughs> I got no excuses. <laughs> and uh, they also have a winter uh, beach club series where they bring in uh, cover bands. For uh, ACDC, and there's this all women's group called Zepparella. Oh, yeah. I went to that. It was 80% guys standing up on a stage looking at these hot chicks playing yep. in Led Zeppelin, and, and they're replicating this music pretty good. Oh, yeah, no, they're pretty killer. I've heard, I've heard some of their stuff before. And there's yeah. all kinds of, uh, there's a guy named Mark, Michael Martinez up there that I've seen him play with four or five different. Uh, groups and there's also a local uh, Tongan guy uh, called Chabon Tiger. Chabon Tiger. Chabon Tiger, and he used to play every night for the blues uh, festival in Suquamish. Oh, you, know, you could get in and get a piece of beer, a piece of pizza, and a beer for five bucks, and listen yes, to free jazz. <laughs> and there was a big heavyset guy there that played with him, and a Navy organist that would come in and jam with him and a drummer and the big heavyset bass guy. I've seen him playing with the local um, Van Morrison group mm -hmm. and I've seen him play. He was, he was the guy, the big guy that we saw you, maybe I didn't point him out to him, but he was in the background with Cara Hess. Yeah. And he was also bass, playing. Right? Yes. Yeah. So he's local. That's cool. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of good mu music just locally going on. 
I guess the the pig downtown Pulsbo is a pretty decent venue too. Mm. Every every week they have a couple of different people come, don't they? Yeah, and they also are pretty well politically involved. They have um, when these um, initiatives come up, they'll have people come and do a pro and con series. Oh, and I missed the one for uh, Becky Erickson and Ricky Moon. Oh, that would have been great. Now, Ricky Moon didn't have a snowflake's chance in hell beaten. Yeah. But it would have been very entertaining to just... Yeah, because this was for the Paulsville mayoral race, yes, right? Yes, yes. And they also are involved with local uh, farmers. You can buy a share in, in, like, if you had a farm, and uh, you could you could give them 35 bucks a month, let's say, for their farming season, mm-hmm. and they would deliver a box of vegetables to the, the Slippery Pig. So you can go to the pig, pick up your vegetables, have some raspberry beer, maybe some dandelion beer, yeah, or some Kolsch, or whatever. Yep. So they're very, uh, for, for that venue in Paulsbo, which has been Whiskey River Steakhouse, it's been an Indian food Place. Golden Dragon when I grew up. The, that's what it was. Was it? The Golden Dragon. Yeah, yeah it was that that giant Chinese place. And they just moved across town. That's all they did. No, they went under. They've gone. That oh. was the Golden Lion is right there next uh, on oh, the other side yeah. of the So yeah. But yeah, Golden Dragon, they just went bye bye. Did you realize you may have been too young to realize this, but that Albertsons, that whole commercial site there in Paulsbo, mm-hmm. used to be a golf course. Mm. Yeah, I played there. I had no idea. What was it called? Um, Paulsbo Meadows. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with that. Yeah. That works. Yeah, I don't know, but I remember playing there. That's and, awesome. And when I worked on the island for McLarensbury, we had some jobs in Seabeck. And we would leave the island and drop in through Paul's Bow and go to Sly's Bakery. Oh, yeah. And so you could get there about 830 in the morning, and they had free coffee, which was a phenomenon. So we'd take our big-ass mugs in there. So what time is it now? We, can we still make it? <laughs> get free coffee and a sack of donuts and head out to Seabeck. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was – and Seabeck's one of my favorite places. Uh, matter of fact, in my will – it says, please spread my ashes in Seabeck, Washington. Hey, Seabeck is a beautiful place. There's a lot of area to get lost in, which I love. Yep. And I can understand why people like it. Hell, I mean, that's my mom moved out there. Yeah, she's out there. And yeah, she's out there in, in BFE. BF, yeah, BF. BFE. Yeah, and if Good you keep Lord. going past her, you get into BFE squared. <laughs> you get out to Mason County, and they even have a road out there called the Lost Highway. I know that's the road that my mom lives off. Yeah, of. she lives on. Yeah, she. So she's just north then of Mason County then. And they also have a place out there called the Burma Road. Burma Road. Well, so you go past your mom's place into Holly, and you come up out of Holly into Mason County, and you get mm-hmm. on the Burma Road, which follows the east coast of Hood Canal oh, down southerly all the way into Belfair. That's going to be a gorgeous drive. It is. It is. And there's some really nice remote areas out there. A lot of logging going on out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some uh, ORV 
which is an outdoor recreational vehicle. So the DNR has got some vast areas out there where you can ride your mountain bike, your, your scooter, your uh, off-road motorcycle, and, and what have you. So, yeah, uh, that's a really nice area. I've always liked that area. Yeah. So before we started, before we finished up music, you had, you had started to say something about microbrews. Microbrews, yes. Yes. Uh, I have a funny story about microbrews. Oh, please. As, as, whether you know about microbrews, they're just a, in the last 10, 12, 15 years, people started making craft brews. Yeah. And it's taken off. And yeah. now we have all these microbrews. And now distilling is big. They finally, yeah. they finally decided that, that uh, prohibition is over. And we're going to let people make their own whiskey, their own vodka, and everything. And it's good. It's good stuff. And I, I always have and always will support local businesses. We're going to talk about high spirits now, aren't we? Well, we're going to go to North Carolina next. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I went to North Carolina with my ex, ex-wife. Okay. And uh, her father-in-law was uh, working for the... North Carolina Department of Fish and Wildlife, and I said to him after a hard day of transferring turkeys from point A to point B, which was 100 miles, I said, let's go get us a couple microbrews. And he said, microbrews? What's that? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, he said, what are they, really small? (laughs) And I said, no, no, they're craft beers, you know. So we went to this local Safeway, and the closest thing I could get outside of Coors Light, Bud Light, Michelob Light was Moosehead. Okay. Which is a pretty good Canadian yeah. ale or maybe lager. Yeah. But they but they don't know what microbrews are there. Yeah. And another funny story about microbrews, I went to my 40th uh, high school reunion and a couple of us got together before the Saturday night event and we went to a pizza place. And they had a wall of beer. They had a cooler in the back that was 40 feet wide, six, eight feet tall. And there was every kind of beer. I didn't see any beer in there that I had not had a sip of, plus a lot of beers that I never heard of. That's awesome. And so you grab a beer out of there, and you go back to your table, and you crack the top, and you throw it in a cup on the table. And when you're done, they come and count your beer tops, and that's how much you own. Oh, it's, that is it's the all coolest. the same. So Coors Light's two bucks, and Moosehead should be four bucks. Is still two bucks or whatever. Maybe everything's three bucks. But I'm telling my buddies, what? Why do you still drink Bud Light? Yeah. And why do you drink Coors Light? I said, there's a world of beer back there. There's so many beers back there that you you could drink here a week or two and not have them all. Yeah. Well, we like Bud Light. Well, I like Bud Light. <laughs> I like the way you talk, too, but you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, I think Coors Light has its place in society, just like every beer. But let's just, let's not, uh, we're not going to church it up. It is what it is. And it's, I mean, it's it's Coors Light. It's Bud Light. It's It it's has a, a place. It's a drinkable beer. You can yeah. drink a six-pack. Yeah, you can drink a six-pack and probably function semi-normal. Because it's 3-2. Yeah. You have a six-pack of these rainy days IPAs at 6.7%. Yeah. 
You're not walking home. No. Well, you may walk home, but if you drive home, you better not. <laughs> you better not better, drive home. You better not drive home. Woo-wee. Speak, actually, I didn't get, I'm just going to tell you this right now. I went and discovered a new place. It's actually not even that new, downtown Kingston. You and your, uh, your lady friend might like to go there. Um, it's called the Wine Club. Yeah, Divines. Yeah downtown and they used they've always been downtown they just kind of been more up the road but is that right across the street from the filling station yeah it's right next door to the ale house yeah literally adjoining oh yeah we went in there last night and we were the first customers ever to they were doing a a seasonal wine pairing wine and cookie pairing so we had just finished dinner at the ale house and we were going to go get a glass of wine to finish off the night before we go down to see the Christmas lights. Mm-hmm. And we went in and it was like, well, hey, I guess we're going to have dessert. And so they just brought us out three little cookies. I think I had a chocolate chip, peanut butter, and a gingerbread cookie. And then the sommelier they have, they hired from Houston, came up here and she pairs the cookie with a wine. Only, only in Kingston. Yeah. Only in but Kingston. I will tell you. That was an amazing... We ended up staying for like two, three hours, and I ended up buying a French bottle of champagne on the way out. We So is it on the ferry side of the ale house? Yes. Okay, so I was thinking of right across the street from the filling station is a mm-hmm. place that's only open like four to seven. Yeah. And they had some jazz musicians in there last oh. Saturday, and we ended up going somewhere else, but... I wonder what that, yeah, because they just, that's where they used to be, and then they moved down from there in, I guess, September or August, which I didn't even know about. So they've been down their place next to the Ale House for months. Well, Kingston's coming up in the world. It sure is. I gotta pee. You gotta pee? Can we? Yeah, we, well, I think we've been doing this about an hour. We can wrap it up if you want. Let's wrap it up. So, Mike, Miguel. Yep. Thank you very much for doing this. Man. Thank it was a you for talking to you. Fine. Thank you for interviewing me. It's been a pleasure as it always is. To talk to you. Absolutely. I can't wait to see this live. It's live, Saturday baby. night. <laughs> <laughs> the music provided in today's episode, entitled Once Again, can be found on bensound.com. If you're in the need for some royalty free music, just check out bensound.com. That's B E N. S-O-U-N-D dot com.